0: We're trying to prototype technology, to prototype user experience, but to prototype business models. You cannot learn what you already think you know. At the end of the day, I'm really driven by learning. I really view myself as a parent of teenagers. The thing is, I think that being an angel investor is kind of like being a parent of a teenager. It doesn't
1: matter if you fail, it matters to me if you lie. Hello, welcome to Venture Confidential, a series of interviews with top minds in venture capital. I'm your host, Peter Chapman, and today I'm joined by Hampus Jacobson, one of the angel investors with Nordic Makers. In this episode, we talk about his relationships to entrepreneurs, how he manages his time, and bias in investing. Hope you enjoy. Hampus, welcome to Venture Confidential. Thank you, thanks for having me. Where are you right now? I'm in Sweden.
0: I'm in um, I'm a city called Malmo, which is a third largest city in Sweden, which is 300,000 people. So it's a tiny hamlet in American standards, and not even a spec in Chinese standards, and it's super close to Copenhagen. So we jokingly call Malmo the Brooklyn of Copenhagen because there's a bridge, and Copenhagen is kind of
1: the capital for us. I love that. Is it also infested with expensive coffee shops and? Uh... Absolutely, absolutely. We have the trickle down economy from the hipsters here too. Beautiful cornflake shops and stuff. Well, we'll talk more about what it's like investing out of Sweden. But I'd love to start with you and how you got into venture. Yeah, so it's actually really weird. I think there are two parts of getting into venture. One is,
0: how the heck did you get the money to get into venture? Mm-hmm. And the other part is, so now when you have the money, why do you spend it on something as volatile as startups? And I think that the, the first answer is, so I, I'm a computer scientist. When I was in, in school, I, when I was in university, I really wanted applied knowledge. I spend all my time doing math, I love doing theoretical stuff, but I really want to do, get hands on work. So the first summer in university, I just lied and said it was a mandatory internship in Swedish universities, and I had to do this internship at a French firm doing cryptography and implementing stuff for them. And they replied, yeah, sure, do you know A11 Assembler? And I was like, yeah, naturally, which I'd never seen then. I'd seen other Assembler, but not A11, and not, of course, to that level, and you know, this was a professional thing, so... It was a lot of lot of work learning that very quickly, and then I kept doing that. I tr- like worked one summer in Paris, one summer in London, one summer in in Munich in Germany. And uh, when I got back, I uh, I really felt like every time I went back to university, I met with all my friends. I'd done different things with, and we'd done a lot of digital art. One of the companies I worked, worked at in London was a digital arts company, and we built these amazing arts installations. And with my friends back since we were seventeen, we'd built arts installations with. Playstations and Xboxes, but of course, maybe Xbox didn't expect that, but you know what I mean, like the Segas and the Amigas and the PCs. There was a pretty wild scene here in the Nordic called the demo scene. And uh, when I worked at that company, I caught back and I was like, guys, hey, I got paid to do this. And, you know, like we build this art installation for Channel 4, and they paid like 100K pounds for that. So it's like, that's a crazy amount of money. So we should do that. And yeah, one thing led to another, and randomly a friend of mine ended up. Talking to somebody who allowed us to build an arts installation, we got really well paid, and so we said, "Hey, let's start a company. Let's start an corporation so we don't like get rid of like lose all the money. So we can get, keep the VAT and buy computers for the, all the money because hey, we're twenty. So it's like we want to buy computers. That's what we want. Gear. So we started doing that, and then uh, we just wanted not to be employed. That was the business plan. We like when we learn self development and like not work for the man." And uh, one thing randomly led to another. And then one day, an old friend of us called us up who worked at Sony and wanted help. And we did exactly the same thing that I did when I was my first company, like the the French one. We were like, yeah, we'll figure it out. And we figured it out. And then we started working with them, and then one thing led to another, and then we started working with Samsung, and then with Motorola, and then with Nokia, and then Google called us, and we ended up designing Android for them. And in 2010, we were in 1313. One, percent of all the world's phones shipped in 2010 we were paid royalty per device and on top of that like the google project was a time and material project completely crazy and out of nowhere blackberry appeared and said hey guys we want to acquire you and we didn't really want to be acquired we were like we're this crazy beast of 180 people like a design tech shop that has a product and it's like it's really messy and really no hierarchy remote working and like you know everything was kind of Nowadays, very modern. Like you know, we had ping pong tables and stuff. But back in 2010, it was a bit nascent. But they were very adamant. They were like, "We want to acquire you." And yes, six weeks later, they paid us 150 million dollars and acquired us. And we didn't have any venture capitalists because, of course, who would invest in the crazy thing of six guys wanting to self-develop and not be employed by the man? So we never even tried, really. So that was how I ended up there. And then I ended up spending two years running M and A for BlackBerry. And that was amazing, because that was I got on the other side of the table, and what I learned mostly from that is that most of us entrepreneurs are really bad at communicating what the value of our product really is. Then the second thing we're really bad at is understanding how a big company looks at this product, and understanding that there's more problems that a big company than just your products can solve. And it's like a complex thing. But I really learned those things coming from the other side. I really understood how many startups I met, or companies I met, that talked about, uh, lossless peer-to-peer protocol with full da blah, blah, blah and I just asked them okay what does that do for us and I realized how many times I'd done that pitch and I realized that we seldom rarely reformulate our, our pitches to actually what it means but we say like what like what we like technically how we solve it and then after that I started another company and built that and didn't raise money and that didn't work out so folded that and sold off the assets and then I started an angel group after that. So, getting now into why I got into venture, when I was at the first company I started, in the last years, I started building our innovation unit and trying to figure out a way to get a lot of more people to come up with products and ideas within the company. Because we were 180 people, we had all the big manufacturers of the world. Again, I mean, more than 10% of the world's phones shipped by us. So, like we were massively impactful, but we had a problem of creating new stuff. And since I was part of the team that designed Android for Google, I'd seen Android early on. And I was afraid that the world was going to change. So I realized we got to we got to figure out new stuff quickly, and because the the world is going to like you know the mobile world is going to rift apart and become something new. Uh, so we tried figuring that out, and I happened to bump into this guy. There was an amazing conference. There were a couple of really good conferences in Melbourne, but one really good developer conference. And I bumped into this like curly haired young guy at the conference who was speaking, and we had some similar ideas. So we started talking there, and I was like, yeah, I like that guy. Like, yeah, really interesting ideas. I sort of took his card, whatever. He's like this new idea he had. He was writing a book. He said, "Like, yeah, whatever." And that was Eric Reese. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, we were standing there discussing Lean Startup because essentially that was what we're trying to do. We were trying to prototype a way to prototype technology, to prototype user experience, but to prototype business models. And in that, one of the biggest headaches I had, and I'm coming to why I started investing, is how do I find people to test this model on? So I started testing it internally, but the problem is there are only so many people who are willing to walk through hell and fire being an entrepreneur. So the biggest reason of, of churn we had in the process I created were people who just said, well, this is not important enough for me. I won't do that. Sorry, what was the thing you were testing here? So, so what we did is like, somebody would come into like the innovation unit that I built and somebody said, ah, last night I got this really great right idea, we should test this out. And we had a process to bring their idea from like the quote-unquote light bulb to something that a customer was willing to buy and use and the technology kind of worked. We to build a really interesting process which today is like come on it's lean startup it's like prototype it's nothing new today but back then it was crazy just thinking about you know changing the process to sell design build that was crazy and especially in telecoms which is an infrastructure world it's themed and it's the same with hardware today it's like before Kickstarter people were you know people had blueprints before they even thought about the user I mean that's all changed so we started building that process and the problem I had was that most of the people who came to me when they pitched the ideas and I like Put their idea to pressure. They just say like, oh, "Okay, this seems really hard. I don't want to do this anymore because like I can't. I don't. I can't work that much, or like I'm not willing to do that. So I can't call people I don't know." So then I asked myself, "How can I find people who have a relentless drive and want to try ideas?" So I started just dating the nascent startup community, and and actually, honestly, 2010, NAMO was not the biggest. We had we have some really really big IT companies. We actually have the biggest open source per capita in the world because. Uh, Linux is a lot of Linux stuff here. ARM is here. Ericsson is here. A lot of, of open source people, but not a lot of startups. You didn't do it, used to back then. So I just started finding the ones I could find and started testing this model with them and, like, quote unquote, advice them without knowing anything what I did, which I think most advisors honestly do. And then what happened is that I just sat in front of one of them and we started talking, and he he really realized that this experiment he was running was an amazing idea. But the problem was, you know, we needed 30k dollars or something to actually try that seriously. And we realized both of us sitting there saying, "So how do you get somebody who gets what you're trying to do? It's super early. It's like you know, there's really like it's really intangible. It's really hard to understand to like give you 30k." We're just sitting there back and forth. Somebody trusts you. Blah 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 blah. Somebody believes in the experiment, and we couldn't like we were testing different ideas with people we knew with money. And then I realized, hey, I can give you 30k. So I'll give you 30k and how do we do this? And he was like, I can give you shares back? And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, we could do that. You know, like really reinventing the wheel in the most idiotic way. I'm like, you know, what's the valuation and everything? We're just like, okay, so we. I guess we had some prototype of a convertible note, which is ridiculous. And so we did that. And then I love that, because I really learned a lot from that experience. And the amazing thing is, at the end of the day, I'm really driven by learning. So I'm trying to find things which are, I'm not at all interested in making money. I don't want to invest in things that will totally fail and lose the money because then it's probably not going to be interesting for anybody, but I want to invest in stuff that is economically sustainable so it can grow and make a huge impact and can you know, make money for itself later. It doesn't have to be cash flow positive within forever, but you know what I mean, not, like, not giving money to an NGO who just spends it uh, necessarily. But otherwise, what I like investing in is stuff that is close enough to me that I feel that I can contribute and add value to them but far away from me enough for me that I haven't done exactly that. So, like when I did the exits in my company, I met a company who said, "Like, hey, we're a Norwegian company. We're building this user interface framework, and you guys, you rule the world of user interface frameworks because that was my first company. I'd love you to invest." And I just felt, I know the playbook of this. I do not want to do that one more time. Uh, it just feels awful. Mm. And so, I in the beginning, I invested a bit wider. I was doing a lot more different. I did some marketplaces. I did some. Like really cool femtech stuff. I did content plays. I did a lot of different things. And then now I I sort of learned that I don't get that much of enjoyment of stuff that is just too far away. So for me, it just ended up being a better and better focus. Uh, And I think it's just like with anything. In the beginning, I believe that you have to first explore, then exploit. So I was very much like in explore mode in the beginning and just tried stuff. And then I was very much like a people first. And the only rule I had was that. I would be slightly more biased in investing in women just because there was a, yeah, there are just fewer women in, in tech. So I just felt so if I'm on the fence, if it's a woman, I'm okay with it. If I'm on the fence of the man, I'm not gonna do it. And that was the only rule I had in the beginning. Everything was just pure emotional. Hmm, okay. So that's like so that's like how I get into like the short story. I made money from building a startup that just went all too well. And then I started investing because I was super curious. And now it's it's become another thing
1: you said you've really narrowed it on your focus what is that area of focus for you
0: yeah yeah sorry yeah so narrow in the sense that you know i would say you know i would say the sense that anybody can explain chinese food until they go to china and realize that chinese food is a pellet of food so for i think when i talk to you i would say i still have a very wide focus but i think that i so i do technology investments software technology investments that can scale which you know you know that can mean a lot of things but that means I don't invest in movies. I don't invest in content. I preferably don't invest in marketplaces, which is still like it's still a very very wide thing. Anything, everything that you're doing, pretty much could be stuff that I could be interested in. But of course, then it ends up being uh, there's other criteria. Another criteria of mine is I I enjoy investing in stuff where it should be done, which means I don't invest in ad tech, for example, because mm. I just feel like. Okay, we don't need yet another ad tech thing. I mean, it's not that it's broken. I understand that it's broken from an internal arbitrage or blah blah blah. I mean money left on the but like, come on, who cares? But so, like, I really like to feel like, oh, that's a problem that we should, as a humanity, solve, and it doesn't have to be cure cancer because to be like, oh, that's 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 the problem. I know somebody is in pain for that. But then it's a lot about the people. If I meet somebody I really like, I have a hard time not investing. What are some examples of problems we should solve that you've invested in? So the problem is, I invested in sixty-eight companies which means that uh, like I invest in a lot of different things. Like I invest in Clue. Uh, Clue is a femtech company. It's a period tracker, which is pretty amazing. And the amazing thing is if I told you, I have built this technology, which is a performance improvement technology that allows you to figure out exactly what to do when, when to take tests, when to run, when to like, when you negotiation with your, your boss, whatever, and like 20% improvement or more, and you were like, whoa. And then I was like, there's the no one, Kevin. It only works on fifty one percent of the population. And you're like, yeah, that's okay. Like that's pretty amazing. And then my next sentence is, it's women. Then most investors are like, oh shit, it's only women. That's too bad. But when I met them, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I mean, most guys don't understand how big this thing is. But we've all gone through puberty, and what puberty is is just a sea of hormones, which fifty-one percent of the population experience on a like twenty-eight day cycle. So like, what if you could, when you're in your puberty, if you're a guy. What if you could measure like what's going on? That would be amazing. Well, most people have that, but they're not getting help with it. So that's definitely one company that I was super in love with on investment. in my, I released a lab. Then I invest in just a wide range of companies. I was thinking of kind of find companies that I invest in a company called Castle, a cybersecurity company that figures out account takeover technology. So it figures out if somebody is trying to take over your account and steal your account, which is, I think, cybersecurity companies. I wish there were more, just a massive amount of cybersecurity companies. And the only place on earth we really see those are, we see them in Israel, but they're actually not in most other places. they are not that many other good security companies or cybersecurity companies. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. It's kind of like saying, which of your kids do you love the most? It's kind of hard. Oh. But I recently invested in a dream injection company. I believe that's going to be a super interesting thing in the future because, I mean, what if you, right now they've actually only managed subtraction. So they only subtract dreams, which means that you're dreamless. Uh, which is amazing for people with PTSD, because you just don't have nightmares. But then the problem that they're what they're planning to do is being able to add dreams. So you can, for example, have this important match to go tomorrow. So then you inject a dream, and you're going to be a lot more focused in your game tomorrow. Which I think is is a super cool idea, and I like I really like it. How do we sign up for dream injection? Yeah, I mean, right now, sadly, it's the only dream subtraction. But they're actually launching uh, pretty soon. They're they're launching their stuff, and people can try them out. But there's like I am starting to get really fascinated. I am really interested in trying to figure out stuff that changes behavior. Mm. But I think most companies that are trying to change behavior, they're doing it like to do list style, and I think that's that's like not what I'm after. I'm, I'm right now. I'm really interested in. Um, heart variation monitors or heart frequency variation and figuring out when we can reconnect that. Because you can see that in depression, you can see it in sleep issues. And right now there are companies that are starting to build monitors that you can use so you can get the data. And I think that it's kind of the level where we were with 23andMe. You get the data, but you don't know what to do with it. And I think that still within genome technology, it's still kind of like that. You get the data, but then what? And I think that's what I'm looking to see, that the companies are applying that in ways that I actually believe in. And I think we're going to see a lot of those super-advanced health tech, which are interesting. Then, of course, I am super-actually interested in right now into
1: decentralization technologies. And I actually developer tools, too, partly because of my background. What's your take on this flurry of, of ICOs that we see happening?
0: Yeah, the good thing about it is that Coinbase and all of these have a pretty horrible user interface. Which means that the people who have invested and have a lot of Bitcoin that can participate in ICOs, they are geeks who got rich because they were early
1: in Bitcoin. Actually, let's take a step back here because I just realized we we're diving deep into jargon. So, so maybe before we start talking about ICOs and new blockchain technology, you could tell our listeners what an ICO is. Why new blockchain technologies are are exciting right now? Yeah. So, I think what I think is exciting about blockchains is I think that. So back in the
0: day, a mystical person invented Bitcoin. And then after that, there was a an, an next technology called Ethereum. And to explain it, I think there are two fundamental things. And Bitcoin is kind of like a Harry Potter book. And anybody who says, hey, I want a Harry Potter book, you get the Harry Potter book. So you get a, you get a block. And what happens with this is that anytime anybody's writing anything in a book, it appears in all the books simultaneously, because it's a magical Harry Potter book. And now there's a short period of time when you need consensus that people say it's okay that you wrote this, or it's going to, before the ink dries. And if, if it's not okay, then it's going to be reject, rejected. But if it's okay, the ink will stay in the book, and it's going to stay there forever. And everybody will have their book. And the magical thing about that is like, if I give you money, you know where the money came from. If I sell you a house, you know the provenance of it, everything like that. That's just the basic of Bitcoin. And then there's another thing with Bitcoin is that that there's a scarcity in it, there's not infinite amounts, which is makes Bitcoin the perfect replacement for gold, essentially. I'm not super interested in that because I think that, okay, cool, we have an asset that we can trade, who cares? What I like about a theorem and and the protocols is two things. First of all, it's as if this Harry Potter book had a little foreword that every time you wrote in the book you had to read this thing in the front and you had to follow the instructions, like a little recipe. So it says, so now I give you this house and if I'm a student, you'll have to give it 20% cheaper and 10% you give to the universal basic income to this organization, and when i write in the book everybody looks it's okay and then the signature goes through and then you know just like the law is the law it's we do what it says in the forward because of this particular blockchain so ethereum the ethereum is essentially the book and there's a place where you can write the forward and then people have built apps or or different applications on top of this which is essentially just different forwards and they call these different block, blockchains different things it's maker or gnosis or whatever and it's just like you know it's different forwards so that's kind of the basics of it. And the amazing thing that the books, the Harry Potter books with the forward create, the Ethereum's creates, is that the value is in the protocol and not essentially only in the app. And the reason I love that, and the way to think about that is that what if back in the day when SMTP and IP and everything was created, what if the money went somewhat at least to the people who created that so they can create new infrastructure for our world? But no, it didn't. Like you know, Google and Twitter and everything is built on these technologies. And the people who built them, not only did they get anything, but they had a hard time funding themselves. Linus Torvalds, who built Linux, worked like different daytime jobs to be able to write the most prolific operating system in the world. So now, suddenly the question comes, hey, can we make sure that the actual protocol gets more money than the actual app? And the way that's solved today is that when you create these books, now I'm creating, like you and I decided we were going to create a new book that does something which is, in, let's say we create an option program book so we create a book to figure out option schemes for employees, because we didn't like the government's way of doing this. We want a program that when the company is later sold, you get part of the cake, and we have this ledger that says who owns who, quote-unquote owns what. And when I do, when we do this, we build this, and in the beginning we realize, okay, we're doing it during nighttime, but then we start to run more and more and we need some kind of salary. So what we do then is that we start selling coins. We say, does anybody want to buy like 100 of these coins for like $100,000 dollars? Because in the future these coins are going to be useful, you know, because in the future when people want to build option programs, they're going to try to buy these coins from you. And if these people believe in the idea that we're creating this, they're going to reason: in the future, these coins are going to be more worth than they're now. Because in the future everybody wants want to buy these coins because it's an awesome idea, if they think we're an awesome team. So suddenly people will give us money, and the weird thing is that us, you know, we can kind of be an open source project. And that's what I think is so fascinating about it. And right now, it's super. And then what people do now is they build these things where they do initial coin offerings. And And the word ICO is really like from IPO, initial public offerings. But it's suddenly when people say, instead of saying, oh, maybe we need some cash, let's figure out if somebody can 100K, they say, hey, what we're building is worth $150 million, and somebody can buy a third for $50 million. And people look at us, and look at advisors, and they say, Whoa, the guy who built Ethereum is our advisor. Hey, this is going to be amazing. And they gave us $50 million. And we're two dudes in a shed. So, ICOs, I think it's a bit of a bubble. I think most people are abusing it super heavily right now. I think there are very few ICOs, or no, no, there are a lot of ICOs that are well kept, but it's definitely a crazy thing. The crazy thing about this is that the problem with it is completely unregulated. I mean, when you talk to people who participate in ICOs or any kind of pre sales or anything, they find it on Reddit. That's the biggest place to find it. So, like, that's the quote unquote, like, Bloomberg terminal of blockchains, which is pretty crazy. And then the way you buy them is because you need Bitcoin usually or, or Ethereum. And then what you do is you just transfer your, your Bitcoin or Ethereum to a certain address and you get this new token back. The good thing in this, the silver lining, is that we're not having like retirement money from old people or kids saving this way or. Like a house bubble or anything. What's happening is people got, what really happened is some people got really rich on Bitcoin because they were just early on believing it. And when Ethereum came along, they just rolled over and Ethereum did 800x. So, like, whoa, they were crazy rich. And then suddenly somebody created a protocol to share storage or share processing power or voting. And they were like, yeah, I'll give them a million because, like, the million I have is monopoly money anyway. <laughs> like, you know, I gave, like, I, I spent $1,000 to get Bitcoin and now that's worth 20 million. So, hey, why not? And the good part of that story is I think that what if in a world where developers could pay other developers? And you know that happens a few places in the world, but it's super rare. And the problem is that when it happens, like in the Valley, when you have the the, the Twitter and the, the Facebooks and the Googles and everything, they usually acquire these people and have them to work for you for two years and give you posh titles and posh jobs and food, which means you never leave. But in this world, it's as if a developer who's a smart developer who knows tech. Somebody says, yeah, I love what they're doing. I'll give them a million bucks because I don't really have this million bucks anyway. And the good thing also from taxation reasons, if, if they wanted the million bucks in bucks, they'd have to tax the crazy shit out of it. Which means they have this monopoly money that they, why not invest it? So the only really silver lining of ICOs right now is that we have developers funding developers. And right now, right in like the last three months, we're starting to get a lot of people in speculation looking at this and going, whoa, 800x? Who's said 800x? So let's throw money at this. And I think we're going to see some people that shouldn't be playing with fire, playing with fire. And the good thing is that the people I see playing with fire now, it's the first category, the people who got rich on Bitcoin. That's okay, because that's not real money. And the category are like, you know, the Wall Street, 30-year-olds, the Henrys, the high earners, not rich yet, as I learned it's called. So like, yeah, they've got the money. It's not sad if they would lose 100K because they, like, come on, they play with this money anyway. So I think that in it, I'm not sad about it yet. I think we are going to see some of these things crash. And then I think it's going to recalibrate itself.
1: Have you bought any of these early protocols?
0: No, no, I'm actually, the only thing I I personally invest in is Ethereum. Oh, great. And the reason I actually do that, and I, I might participate in some of the app coins or other protocols, but the reason I do Ethereum is that for me, my logic in this is that. What if I could have given $10,000 to SMTP you know, in 1970? And you know I wouldn't have gotten my money back because like, the protocol was thin instead of fat as so it is today. The value would have come with, it, you know, with, with Gmail or whatever or, or Outlook. But I get an email every 30 seconds. It's like I should have paid for that before. Now I'm not paying for it. So like, I could have just paid 10 a long time ago and the rest of my life I could have used this amazing service, which I love, which is email. And I think we see the same thing with a lot of technologies. I mean, we're using, uh, you and I are using technologies right now that are invented by other people, and we're not paying anything for them, or we're paying, you know, maybe like you know, ten bucks a month or something. And this is like the people who deliver the technology to us are not even the people who invented it. So I think that we should be paying further down the stack earlier because those are the people who are inventing things that were just. I mean, Tim Berners-Lee, he's Sir Tim Berners-Lee. Yeah, he got paid by the Queen, but. You know, and he gets to go and speak at conferences and he's super famous. But there are a lot of people who did amazing things, which are, who are not Tim Berners-Lee, who are not famous, who are not making money, and who are people who build the operatives as we reuse, who are completely unknowns.
1: Sure. I want to shift gears here a little bit and talk more about you as an investor and sort of the relationship you have with founders you work with. And now you work with a whole bunch of founders and you've written quite a bit about this. I was particularly moved by this article you wrote about time management. Mm-hmm. You said, Something I'm trying to get better at it. I'm curious, so I say yes to a lot of things and I want to be more disciplined. But all of you folks that I've invested in, you should be asking me for more. Mm. Tell me a little bit about what good asks from your founders look
0: like. So yeah, so really good asks in general. I view that, and I don't mean this in any patronizing way. I think it's super important to say that, and I'm going to try to repeat it so that you can't edit it out. <laughs> but I really view myself as a parent of teenagers. I don't have teenager kids, but like you know, the feeling I think I have been a teenager actually. I don't know if you have, but I, I tried that for a while. And the thing is, I think that being an angel investor is kind of like being a tenant, parent of a teenager. Like you have no idea what they're doing. You don't really get it when you ask them what they're doing. They're like, I'm out, and you're saying when are you come back? And they say later. And you're like, okay. And when they call you're like, I dad, I'm stuck. I need money. And actually, like when you need the money, it's like now. Like okay. And when you meet them, they're usually emotionally completely crushed because their girlfriend left them. Also known as their girlfriend. <laughs> I love this. So it's kind of very much like parents of teenager. And I think that what I really try is I really tell people I think as any parent of teenagers would tell them is like tell me stuff in advance. Just like you know, if you're thinking about a worry, just tell me. And I think it's something I really try to to help them in a, in a, with because I really the difference between being a parent of a teenager. And an angel investor yes. is that it's not my DNA. If you have kids, like you, you, build them for 15 years, so the investment is kind of crazy high. You're just somebody I get 20k dollars. So it's like if you fail, it's okay. I'm not going to be mad at you. Hey, it's, it's mm. monopoly money. It's like you know, it's okay. So I really tell them first of all, it doesn't matter if you fail. It matters to me if you lie. So like, don't lie to me, please, because that's just that's just irritating. It just makes it hard for me. Keep me in the loop. That's a lot easier. And then the other thing I really try to tell them to make this easier is to tell them, "I'm an angel, but I'm actually an entrepreneur. I'm I used to be a developer. Uh, like I try new stuff constantly, and I have no clue what I'm doing. So I am not your parent. Like I'm your colleague. Like I like when I give you advice, it's not as if I even try to think that I know it. I tell you my opinion, like on the top of my head, and I really tell you, like, yeah, this might be it, but I don't know because like you've thought." you think about this like 20 hours a day, and I've thought about it for two minutes. So how do you even believe my advice could be useful? At the same time, as an external person, I could give it amazing advice because I know myself, if I've spent 20 hours a day thinking about something, and I can't explain it to somebody, that's the problem. So a lot of times when I meet the founders or CEOs I invest in, I like ask them, so what are your biggest problem right now? What's the bottleneck? Can you explain the problem we're trying to solve? Like, I know we're trying to solve, but explain it to me as if you didn't know me. And, like, we walk through it, and I said, What's the most important stuff right now? And they're saying this and that. And it's like, What are you up to now? What keeps you up at night? And, like, that conversation then goes into them going, Yeah, now I want to talk about this topic or something. But with this background info, I can then say, You just said that between now and Christmas, we need to add another 40K MRR, because otherwise we will probably not close an A round, because we need around as you said, around 70k MRR to close around. I think that sounds good. Like 70k MRR would definitely feel like we could do a proper around, My guess: I can ping some people and ask. So right now you talk. Now suddenly you're talking about the new web page. Do you think the new web page will increase conversions a lot? And they're like, no, it's just like our logo is super old and everything looks really bad, and we should change our name. We're like, yeah, okay, that might be it. But can we just go back to what you just talked about? You were super panicky about this increasing MRR, and they're like, yeah. I know that you mentioned it, but what do you think of our webpage? And then I tell them, like my webpage, it looked like at both the companies around, they looked horrible. And it's like that didn't matter. And then I tell them, I mean, I tell them of companies I invest in who are amazing. When you're on the web page, there's like not even info. And I tell them all these stories that I've experienced myself of anything from products I bought, people I invest in, companies, and just try to give them like anecdotal evidence. And of course, plural of anecdote is not data. But I don't think there is data. I think it's a lot of early stage entrepreneurs up before you're at like I think there is a playbook when you get like when you get to like 100k MRR or even like 50k. I think there's some playbook stuff. But I would say between zero and 5,000 MRR, there's as much playbook as trying to teach anybody to be an artist. It's like yeah, be gritty. Like you know, work hard. Be customer facing. Like be super serious about whatever you're doing. Like you know. Stuff which is like meaningless advice in one sense, and like a lot of times, what I try to do with people is just like f- get them to focus. Mm. So I met a company I'm investing the other day, and they were bragging about how they rented this slightly too big office because they think they're going to grow fast, and they are super happy because they rented out uh, the office, so now their rent is free. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. And they started talking about this a lot. And after a while, I was like, I just going to ask, like, what is the rent? And they told me the rent, and I was like, what are your salaries? And they said their salaries. Like, how much time do you think you spent on this? And they were like, you know, 10 hours maximum. I was like, seriously? You've made the place amazing. It's like all these signs. Now you've spent this hour talking about them. I think you spend probably like 10 hours a week on this. So let's calculate what that's worth. Just in, just in like time lost. And when we did that, they said, yeah, we still make more money. Yeah, but now let's talk about the opportunity lost by spending 10 hours on something you shouldn't have spent. Like, you shouldn't. And then they were sitting like, shit. Like, we shouldn't have cared. No, exactly. you shouldn't have cared. And I think that's the thing, which is, it's just so hard. Like, I do the mistake constantly, myself, you know. Sometimes I write a blog post, and I sit there trying to fix one sentence, and I send it to some friends for review, and the friend says, I don't get what you're trying to say. Like, it doesn't have any structure. And then I realize, I'm sitting there, like, you know, myopically trying to figure out that it's going to rhyme, or like be allegorical, or whatever smart stuff. But I haven't actually thought about how it, the whole thing works.
1: Yeah, this is, this is really interesting to me. You know, it sounds like a lot of the coaching you do is around making sure that founders are focused on the bigger picture, that they're allocating their time appropriately. And it's something that we all struggle with, right? Like I certainly struggle with this as a venture capitalist. How do I know when I should be sort of doing a broad scan of the industry and when I should be down really deep in a particular company or problem? What are some tools that you use to make sure you are spending your time on the right places? Is it me personally or helping the founders?
0: No, you, Hampus. Yeah. So the the way I do it is that I would say that I have. So now I'm. Oh, I'm, I'm old. Uh, like I'm thirty. I'm thirty eight. So I think that uh, you know, internet age. I'm old. Hey, I, uh, it's crazy. No, but I think that I think that what's happened the last ten years for me is I think that I realized I have to. And this sounds completely meaningless. So I'm a stoic. Like I'm very much a stoic, and I've always been. I just didn't know I was a stoic. I Didn't know there was a book about it. It was actually, the Stoics were actually written before I was born, so I'm not that old, but I didn't read them until like, you know, five, six years ago.
1: But the thing is, I figured out that I. Sorry, could could you give us just a, a couple of sentences on what Stoic philosophy means? Yeah, exactly. So I thought a lot of people think being a Stoic means that you just don't feel
0: pain or ignore pain. That's just not at all it. It has nothing to do with that. Being a Stoic is really understanding that the obstacle is the way. Like, I think that, you know, understanding that. If you're given a headache, a problem, that is an opportunity in itself. Like, let's say that you are trying to build, you know, like, two different examples. So, you're trying to build this gaming company, and you have this hard problem of trying to communicate to each other all because you're distributed. So, you start using IRC. It really doesn't work really well for you. You hate it, and then you're building a UI for that, and it works really well. And then you realize your game is kind of sucks because you spend all your time building this, this chat protocol, and then you fold it, and you realize all the stripes around you want that RC, and you realize suddenly one day you're Slack. So that is the obstacle that you had, was actually the solution of finding something amazing. So I think that that is an, a time when something that have, could have been like your biggest problem, like how many developer tool companies don't we know, that try to build a product, and when they try to build that product, they had to build a small framework to figure out something. And then they realize this framework we built that is the amazing thing, let's go and do that. So I think that's like the, the obstacle was actually the way for them. And the other way is, like, let's say you're finding something that actually doesn't lead to something amazing, then it is really personal growth. So let's say you have kids, for example. So like a lot of founders are like, oh, you can't have kids, it's impossible because you can over it. The thing is, kids are an amazing tool because kids put restraints. And that means you have to prioritize your time. So you have to kind of look at it as like, okay, somebody's getting me up 6.30 in the morning, and I like I, I hate when you listen to like the, the Tim Ferriss podcast and he asks like so what's your morning routine? I'm like I have kids. Like, my morning routine is like, you know, <laughs> I, get, I get I get to like, you know, get kids to school. That's my morning routine. I don't do meditations in the morning. That's no way. I would have loved to like go on off the beach and jog whatever, but that's no way. But anyway, so I think that in a sense the second part of the obstacle way is that it's just framing. It's just like if you're stuck on the highway on the 101 and realize like fuck, I hate being stuck in on the one highway or you just say, "Hey, let's listen to that podcast and have a great excuse to be late at work." And I think that's, that's framing. The most important thing for me is not complaining about stuff. So for me, there are only like three alternatives when I find a problem. It's solve it, ignore it, or accept it. And there's nothing else. Because if something's irritating, it's, that's the only three things I can actually do. And the most common thing that people do is whine about it.
1: So hold on, I feel like we're a victim of this very thing we're talking about. I asked you, how do you find focus? And, and I, I got an answer about Stoicism. So exactly. So
0: then, yeah, you know. But then you asked me when I was trying to answer that. You asked me, so what is a Stoic? So how do I find focus? I think that I find focus by leading in and being who I really am, and really allowing myself to just say, okay, I am a very logical beast. I'm like very logical. I love routines. But the thing is, within those routines and without that logic, I'm highly stochastical and super emotional and super impulsive. But I love frames on the outside. So what I've learned for me is like I build routines on the outside. Like I have a framework which I'm crazy rigid about, and I am not like Tim Ferriss rigid about. But you know what I mean? It's like you know I wake up this hour. I have a I have a go to bed alarm in the evening, like that goes off, and I'm supposed to go to bed an hour after that alarm goes off. So it goes off, and I'm like, okay, I just start getting to bed. And like I can be at a party, and it's a great party, and my go to bed alarm goes off, and I can snooze it once maybe. But then it's like, I gotta leave, sorry. What time does the alarm go off? So it goes off at 11 p.m. So I have to go to bed at 12. So it's not that, but it's still very important because sometimes I can find myself in a, like, a gnarly problem. I get stuck in it and the alarm goes off and I'm like, shit, like it's 11 p.m. And I wanted to watch, like, you know, whatever, American Gods or I was like, not tonight, I guess. It's like, it's not just like, let's put it on. It's like, no, I'm sorry. Like the alarm just went off. So that's, that's one thing. And then within that thing, I, I allow myself to be totally free. So for example, what I do is like I have a meeting with myself. I have meetings with myself for shitloads of stuff. Like when I ran a startup, I had a meeting, a monthly meeting with a team, which was called What Is Gonna Kill Us? And we had a three-hour meeting with beer that we talked about what will kill us and we're not allowed to talk about solutions. So let's just talk about what will kill us and whine about that and get everything out. And what was amazing about that meeting is that everybody was pessimistic. They finally found that everybody listened to them and it was amazing that the optimistic guy, the guys and gals, they were able to actually think about creatively, okay, what would kill us? So it's been three hours in that, just writing and blogging and whatever, like, you know, summing it up. And then the day after, you got back and were like, you know the thing you said yesterday? I've thought about that. What on earth are we doing to mitigate that? Like, are we doing anything? Because that actually, like, I've thought about that last night, and it sounds like it's kind of probable, actually, that it could happen. The solution's tomorrow. But like just booking a meeting, which is what is going to kill us, Made us so calm for the rest of the month because we knew that we were going to have that meeting. So, if you're the pessimistic developer on the team and feel like nobody listens to me, you just write a note in Evernote or Google Drive or Google Keep or whatever you're using, and you know that Friday next week we're going to talk about it. And you don't have to be like, nobody listens to me. I'm like, you know, I'm Cassandra. Nobody can hear me. We're going to die. So, I do a lot of these meetings. So, for example, I have a meeting with myself once a month that says, hang out with a friend all day and I spend a whole day with a friend doing what that friend usually does Mm. when they're off, so not like if they work, I don't work with them. For example, when I worked really hard, I had a meeting with myself every Wednesday evening that said, a dinner with a friend. And I didn't know who, I just had to figure out who. And my only rule was not with a colleague, Mm. So like because otherwise it's a work meeting. So just forcing myself to do all these things. But when I'm in the moment, I don't have any rules for myself. So I'm the guy that just says these horribly blunt stuff to people. I met a woman at a party a couple of months ago who had completely burned out and crashed. And like, you know, work-related. And I'm a very curious person. So I asked her, what made you burn out? And she was like, you know, I just work too much, I guess. And like, okay, what are you going to do next? And she was like, I really don't want to talk about that. And I was like, because, you know, that was what stressed her out. And I was like, okay, I don't want to be unempathic, but what stresses you out about talking about it? Like, I really want to know. And it got to the end when she almost slapped me in the face. And I felt like, yeah, I mean, I didn't do this to hurt you. I'm not a bad person, like, but I won't like put limits on myself to think about what other people think about me because I just want to say what I think right now. And I wrote her a long email after I found her email address because I found a friend at the party who had her email. I wrote her a long email after apologizing that I might have hurt her and everything because I want to make sure that she was fine about it. But in the moment, I just want to ask what I spontaneously wanted to ask. That I think was a huge thing for me when I like. I want to be kind to people and I want to ask them why till they tell me to stop.
1: So I'm like a five-year-old. Yeah, so I, I, I want to make sure we're getting this. You, you said a, a couple of things that were interesting. You said one of my techniques is I like allow myself to be myself. Yeah. And it sounds like a, another technique for finding focus is you establish a structure and you're rigid about the structure but you're relaxed about what happens mm. within the structure. Yeah, exactly. And then actually another thing I realized is when I want to learn something...
0: I know that because I know myself, I know that I'm good at the first 20%. So, like, you can tell me about uh, how to write symbols for ballet. And I can probably spend the first minutes of making you feel that I probably know this shit. And I don't know. I have a book about it. I haven't read it. Somebody gave me a book about it. But I can probably make stuff up so you know, like, the 21st percent, I can make it up. So, but the problem is for me, that doing the last 80%, like, I just don't do it. I just feel like, yeah, it's enough if it's not something I'm super interested in. So what I do then is I write blog posts or record podcasts about it. And I do what's usually called like the Feynman technique. I decide that I have to explain it to you or to everybody. Because my core belief is that me in the future is going to be as stupid and unaware about this subject as anyone else is right now. So like I will not remember what I thought just now in just three days. So I'll write a blog post so you get it. Because if you get it, I can read the same blog post in three days and go, wow, that's smart, oh, I wrote it, wow. Because I know in the moment, I'm like a five-year-old. So that's like, I spend a lot of time learning a subject and crafting a blog post about it and trying to summarize everything I learned in a really easy, easy-readable way so that I actually learn it, so I don't end up faking it. Because I know myself, I know that I'm so I'm good at faking it and so far I have to force myself to the the last, last plan. What's well, something you're trying to get better at? The thing I struggle about the most is probably temperance. And actually, recently I realized that I, I am, I, I went to an improv session and I want to do more improv because I really love it, but it's hard to find a good one that, that sort of fits in time and everything else. But I realized when I did an improv that I'm extremely judgmental and I don't consider myself a judgmental person at all. I consider myself like very accepting of everybody. Like, I don't care if like gender, race, ethnicity, if you hate people or not. So I'm like, it's fine. You probably have your reasons. But I realized when I did this improv show, or not show, but but exercise. I realized how I like in the back of my head, I heard this thing going, oh, she just said it wrong, he just said it wrong, why did you do that? And I was like, what the fuck am I doing? I should just be in the moment to enjoy this. And that was like when I realized that I really got to work with this, but I gotta find a way to work with it. Because I in the like, you know, in my day job, I don't consider myself judgmental, but I but I definitely am, of course, and, and biased and everything. Mm. So that's definitely one that I gotta figure out. But the other thing is temperance is like I really feel like I have a lot of tolerance for th- people, but I can't stand when people are, are just wasting resources, time, or, or throwing garbage, or you know, just not eating their food, or not appreciating the moment. Like, you know, you go to an amazing restaurant, like a local small little restaurant, family restaurant, it's like super cool food, and the other person is like eating like super sloppy, doesn't care, doesn't even taste it. And I'm like, what are you doing? It's like you're, you're in, almost in these people's home and you're eating as if you're eating at McDonald's, and that can like frustrate them because they're wasting life. So that's something where I just have to like, you know, figure out a way to work with that and not get frustrated, Or just tell people to shut the fuck up and like fix it, and I don't know like the, that's the thing that's an internal struggle in me. How much I should just be, yeah, it's their thing, and how much I should tell. You just don't do that. Is this an obstacle
1: to you as an investor?
0: Where it hits me as an investor is that I think that I have an issue with bias as an investor, and I'm trying to figure out a way to work with that. And I think this is definitely one of those where, like, when I listen to somebody's idea, I can just feel, oh, they're probably doing this in the wrong way. And maybe they're not at all. But I'm just trying to overcome my bias and understanding, because otherwise there's a huge risk that I just invest in, like, you know, I'm a super cheap AI, like, I'm a very bad machine learning algorithm. Like I've been around for 37 years, 38 years. So I might like I have some nice like patterns that my brain are trying to run. But the problem is that as any machine learning algorithm, the problem is that if I run this data and run with similar data constantly, I just over-optimize the function and get to you do the same thing more. And you know, if I was a capitalist, that might have been amazing, because then I would specialize and be super amazing at investing in, you know, 30 year old white male out of Stanford building ad tech, I would be like amazing at it. I know exactly what a 30 year old white man from Stanford means when he says something. But the problem with that is, I just, like, I'm not exploit, I'm explorer. I want to learn. So I really enjoy just kind of like, okay, I don't get shit what this person is saying. Like, how can I appreciate what they're saying? How can I learn? Like, how can I get into what they're doing? And that is definitely something as an investor, I think I miss out a, a lot of stuff because I just, my pattern recognition just says, eh. And then I just like, hey, 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 is it
1: because my pattern recognition says it's off, or is it because it's truly off? Okay, so so I want to walk through this sort of more explicitly. It echoes a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago about bias investing and how a lot of people have this prototypical image of what an entrepreneur looks like. Yeah, and you know, often people that don't fit that image have a harder time raising capital. And you're talking about this related thing. You're saying, hey, I'm judgmental. I'm sort of quick to to group people, maybe, mm-hmm. and that gets in the way because. Sometimes the pattern matching prevents me from seeing opportunity. Is that a fair summary of what you're going with? Absolutely, here? I absolutely think that's really, really true. So, how do you get out of this? How do you allow yourself to both exploit your own experience and leverage your own gut while making sure that you remain open to stuff that is foreign to you but still worth exploring?
0: I really like what uh, Neville Ravikant said. Like he's trying to run his brain in debug mode, and. Uh, he came up with that. I'm not going to steal it without saying that, uh, mentioning it. So I think that I really like that thing of just trying to be meta what I'm doing, and the problem is that I'm just trying to be in the now. If I'm trying to be in the now, like being on the debug mode doesn't really sound as being in the now. So in the programming analogy, I just set up asserts. So like if I find my brain saying something, I'm like ding stop. I was like let's check what's going on here instead of just being in debug mode because I don't I don't want to be checking every variable constantly and everything. I just wanted to set up a search. Just as like when my brain says, "I don't think she knows what she's doing," I'm gonna like what I just said. She and not knowing. Does this is this because it's the woman who said this, or is it because that the person doesn't know what they're saying? And then I said like, "Hey, maybe it's a communication thing." And I'm like, "Okay, can you explain it one more time?" Sorry, like I'm not following this. Like I, I really, I. Sorry, I just super shit. I don't get it. And like she explains it again. I'm like, she's really good at it. I like, but I, I don't follow. So like, the problem is at my end. So, like, I, I can see that she is good at it, but I can't get it. So, I got to figure out how I'd get it. And then I just ask her to explain it different ways and, like, explain the typical customer, explain why they would buy it, explain what the customer has alternatives. And suddenly I'm like, oh, oh shoot. And like, now I get it. Like, God damn. Like, how can I lose it? Like, I'm so stupid. And sometimes, like, I, when you ask those questions, you just hear them mumbling and you realize, okay, they don't know it either. So, like, I was right. So, I think that one of the rules for me is um, it's a stoic saying. Which is, you cannot learn what you already think you know. So that's the problem. It's like, if I think I know this, my patent recognition is gonna be tenfold. But if I just tell myself, I actually don't know what they're saying. And I think that's a huge problem for a lot of investors. Like, when I built my first company, I started my first company in 2001. That is pre YouTube, that is pre Facebook, that is pre Twitter. So, like, everything, like, you know, the first five years I built the company, social media, like, that didn't exist. So, which means that like, so much of my learnings came from another world. Which means that if I'm advising somebody on, you know, whatever, influencer marketing, I don't know the shit what I'm talking about. So, I just have to tell myself, like, I don't know this. But what I do know is the same analogy as a parent of teenagers. You know, I might not want to crave uh, going to Stanford and, and do my studies because that was not an extra option for me. What I want to spend my money on was a, when I was, whatever, in the 60s, it was a car. But what I know is what it feels you're earning something which is expensive. So I can talk to my teenager and say, hey, I guess this is really important for you. It's like, so we set up planning goals. What would happen if you miss it? What's the reason you want to do this? It's like, you know, just reminding me. And the same thing with influencer marketing. It's like, okay, I don't know what this is. But I can get back to, so what are the goals of this campaign? Do you want to get more people to buy the product? Do you want to improve retention? Do you want to reduce churn? Like I'm not following. And then when they got brand building, I'm like, okay, what's the purpose of that brand building? It's the good thing about being in the moment. It's like I'm the five. I can just ask why until they just say, "Are you stupid?" And I'm like, I guess I am. But I'm just continue asking until I get it. And that's just like admitting that I don't know. And that just makes a huge difference. Just saying I'm not following. And and the good thing is like I really start by preempting the conversation by saying I'm probably stupid. I'm not really following. And you know them feeling that it's not that I'm like complaining, it's just like, okay. And of course, the important thing is there, if you're sitting checking email and you're saying that, you're not being stupid, you're being rude. But if you're fully attentive and trying to listen to them and you're saying that, that actually means something. Awesome.
1: Hapas, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Where can our listeners find you?
0: So the best place to find me is the internet surprisingly, no, I'm kidding, but H-A-J-A-K. So I blog at haja I have H-A-J-A-K um, Twitter. I don't really care about Facebook, I don't care about LinkedIn. So if people connect with LinkedIn, I'm not going to care. If people connect with me on Facebook, I'm not going to care. And I do a podcast now, I'm trying to podcast on the future of governance, which I'm very interested in. Governance is anyway from self-governance to self-governing organizations to blockchain technologies, which people can find under haja and then they can find a link there. My email is everywhere on internet, so like if you email me, I will try
1: to reply. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. I realize it's late in Momo. Hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential. Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library, home to great educational talks by top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders.